How about we pray as we look at God's Word together? Loving Father, just be with us now as we look at this part of your Word and may it take root. Uh, help us to understand what we're looking at. Help us to consider how it changes our thoughts, how it changes our words, how it changes our actions. And we pray that we'll give honour and glory to you as we do this. Amen. Thanks, Bevan. Always helpful to turn that on after bringing it out and going to all that effort. <laughs> Wouldn't it be good to turn it on? It's good to have people notice things. Um, I, I don't know about you, but life is pretty fast-paced, isn't it? Uh, even here on the chill mid-north coast, where everything's supposed to be relaxed, things can seem so pressured. Uh, we can still feel that we're time poor, uh, whether it's with families and, and kids going here, there and everywhere, whether it's uh, the commitments that we've got at work, whether it's trying to catch up with the extended family, if you're grandparents, you've got kids here and grandkids there and so on. It, it can just seem that everything's so pressured. And uh, it was, I guess, uh, a couple of decades ago, probably three or four now, when people were starting to say, if, if we can take hold of the scientific uh, advances, the technology that we're becoming used to, and put it to good use, then we'll have all the time in the world. People were talking about having a 10-hour working week because of all of the mechanism, mechanisms that they're putting into place. People are talking about having so much time for leisure, but it doesn't work like that. When you're in a microwave world, you expect things to be fast, and we get impatient very, very quickly. And I was talking with uh, someone recently about this in terms of the way we live out our Christian life. And uh, you might have noticed that Christian bookshops over the years have come up with things for busy people. That is, the one-minute Bible would be an example, where you can get by with only reading the Bible for one minute per day, and that'll help you in your life. I guess it'll help you for one minute more than not doing it. But you've really got to ask the question, don't you? When does fast become unhelpful? And uh, you may have heard that uh, in recent times there's also been this new thing called the slow movement. Uh, I understand that it traces its roots back to 1986 when McDonald's uh, hamburger joints set up a fast food restaurant in a part of Europe. And there was a reaction against this and there was a movement that started in reaction, the slow food movement where there was an emphasis on gardening and, and organic foods and taking the time to prepare things slowly and getting the experience of producing the food and preparing the food and enjoying the food. And this kind of slow movement now has aspects to it that are far beyond just food and the production and the eating of food. They're kind of encompassing all of life. In fact, there are now cities that have taken hold of this being a slow city where you slow down and you smell the roses. Uh, probably associated with this, I think in the West anyway, there's been an increase of interest in Buddhism, the idea of meditation and slowing yourself down and observing what's going on within you, the mindfulness movement associated with this and so forth. Well, when it comes to God, it's not Buddhism or living in a fast-paced society or a recent interest in meditation that should cause us to think. It's that God himself 
has given us his word to meditate on. And I wonder whether meditation on the word of God is something that we've just kind of forgotten or it's become too difficult because we can't find the time to slow ourselves down enough to actually get into the word and let it soak into us as we take on board what we're reading. But you go back and you look at the Psalms. You, you take a Psalm, the longest of all Psalms, Psalm 119, and you just observe again and again and again that we're encouraged to really take hold of and nourish ourselves, meditate upon, soak ourselves in the Scriptures. Now, last week, we looked at what is arguably one of the most significant passages in the whole of the Bible, certainly in the whole of the New Testament and certainly in the book of Philippians and certainly in chapter 2 at least, right? That is, we looked at this passage about Jesus. I'd like you to have a look at it with me now. If you've got your Bibles open, just open it up. Uh, if you've got the outline that's printed up, you'll see the passage there. And just take a moment to read over again verses 5 through to 11. And ask God as you do that to help it sink in. What do you notice as you read this? How does it impact you? What do you think about Jesus when you hear these words? What's it tell you about God and his attitude towards you? How do you think this would call you to respond as you hear these words, as you read them off the page? In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Just to pause and sit with these words, to think about what God has done for you, for me, for us, how God has become man for our sake to serve us not God looking to be served by us but God becoming man in order to serve us you see the obedience here of this man humbling himself to death even death on a cross this is God in Christ giving his life for you and for me this is the creator and judge of this entire billions of light years large universe becoming a little speck of a man for the sake of restoring broken relationships throughout history between people who reject God and the God who wants them back. This is not something that we do in initiating direction towards God. This is all of God towards us. This is humility on a grand scale. This is love at extreme cost. And it's for you. This is for us. It's extraordinary what we see here. We sing about it. 
We read about it, we teach about it, we pray about it. But do we let this shape us? Do we let this soak into our minds? Does this become part of our attitude? You know, as I read this again this last week, I realised that I'd probably missed something in what's being said here. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I thought I, I hadn't noticed that phrase before, in your relationships with one another. So I went back to another English Bible that didn't have it. And I went back to another English Bible that didn't have it. And I kept looking through all the possible translations that I could find and it didn't have it. So has the NIV at this point added in something that shouldn't be there? Well, if you want word for word, then yes, it has. But if you want idea for idea, no, it hasn't. Because the very nature of what we're looking at here, and this was the revelation for me, even in this past week, is that Paul is writing to the Christians as church, as community. The verses that come before this are all about how Christians relate to each other. And he's not speaking here to the individual, he's speaking to the body. He's saying, in your relationships, you have to have this mind as Christ in relationship to us is committed to putting others before himself as we relate to each other at salt as we relate in our families with other Christians in our salt groups where we are mixing together with brothers and sisters we are to have the mindset of Christ which is putting others first and you'll notice as you read down verse 12 he says therefore my dear friends and when he then speaks of you and your and you and the children of God throughout all of this, he's speaking corporately. The nature of this whole passage is relational. So to start it off with this phrase, in your relationships with one another, it's just kind of setting the context well. Because it's got to do not just with your personal individual relationship with God, but how we together relate to God. And, and that will have a bearing when we work out our salvation let's look at what it looks like in verses 12 and 13 he says therefore my dear friends as you've always obeyed not only in my presence but now much more in my absence continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose here he's calling on us to work out our salvation and and it's to work out our common salvation this is again plural this is writing to brothers and sisters and and notice importantly this is to work out your salvation not to work for your salvation one of the things I've noticed in in our country at least and pretty much that's my only experience is that one of the most common misunderstandings of the Christian message is that people believe it's about self-righteousness. And so when they look at people that they perceive as self-righteous, failing, they can point the finger and say, what a pack of hypocrites. They're no better than anybody else. And they're right. But they're wrong because the gospel is not one of self-righteousness. And we'll see this in chapter 3. It's one of God-given righteousness. It's a righteousness that is by faith, that is putting your trust in another, and the other is Jesus and his death and his resurrection. 
See, the Christian life is not to work for your salvation. But having been saved, we've been saved for a purpose. And so we are saved in order to work out the implications, the applications of our salvation. Paul, when he was writing to the Ephesians in chapter 2, said you have been saved by grace and this is not of works. Very, very clear that we're saved by God's work and not our work. And then he says you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance for you to do. So we're saved by grace in order to live a new life in relationship with God where we do the good works that God's prepared for us to do. So in this verse, therefore, my dear friends, continue to work out your salvation. Live it out. Put it into practice. Work out what that will mean. And notice, there's a bit of grammar here we've got to pay attention to. Verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, I've said it before and it's cute, so I'll say it again. When you see therefore, you've got to ask what it's there for. It points back. Everything he's just said about Jesus is what drives this application. In the light of everything that you've seen about Christ and his humility, therefore, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul is saying, keep on doing what you're doing well. You did it when I was with you. That was great. You're doing it now while I'm not with you. That's awesome. Just keep it going. There's no beat up here. There's no kind of whip from behind, no carrot in front. He's just saying you've started well. God has begun this work. He's continuing this work. Just live it out. Keep putting it into practice. And he's speaking to them together. Continue to work out your common salvation with fear and with trembling. Not the fear of uncertainty. Not with angst that you might not be good enough for God. No, with, with the fear that comes from the reverence of knowing that God has given everything for you. That's how much this matters. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. And he's talking again to the body. Do this together. It's a great joy to see someone come to Christ. It's one of the, the privileges to, to meet with someone, to pray with someone, to share with someone when they submit to Jesus and they receive the salvation that God offers. It's a great heartache to see people turn away. People who, in the words of Jesus, seem to be building in the right way but they're not they're building on sand and things wash it away they're they're kind of sowing seeds on soil where where the weeds grow in and overtake or the birds pluck it away or it's scattered on the path it's a great sadness to see people not continue to not work out their salvation he's saying this together let's care about each other let's urge each other to continue to work out our salvation for, with fear and with trembling. That is our work, to work out the implications of being Christian and to do it together, to care for each other, the younger generation, the older generation, all of us together. 
knowing that, and here's the wonderful part of this promise. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. See, who's responsible for working out our salvation? Is it you or is it God? Is it us or is it our Father in heaven? Yes, that's the answer. It's not, I'll do a bit and then like super, the employer tops it up or the other way around. It's not you do a bit and then God helps those who help themselves, tops it up, you've heard that saying. It's not like that. It's that you work hard to live out what it is to be Christian with the wonderful knowledge that God is at work within you to will and to act according to his good purposes. So who do you thank? You thank God. And how do you work at it? Hard, with an attitude of fear and trembling, knowing that God is an awesome God. These two things, they're kind of hard to put together logically, but we have a God who is beyond the capabilities of our logic, who is able to work in us without taking away any of our will but to enable us to actually work hard at living out being Christian. And how are we to do that? Well, in all kinds of ways, obviously. But it's interesting where we are taken in verses 14 and following. He says, in application to this, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. It's interesting what he picks on, isn't it? Do everything without grumbling or arguing. I reckon if, if I was writing scripture, <clears throat> I probably wouldn't go straight to grumbling or arguing. You, you think maybe there are bigger things to worry about than a bit of grumbling. And that is until I looked at the book of Exodus until you looked at the book of Exodus, if you were with us at Salt over the last term. And we saw that to grumble and to complain and to argue about stuff is to forget your saviour. For Israel in the wilderness, it was to forget ever so quickly that God had just saved them at the cost of the blood of the lamb brought them out of slavery in Egypt to make them his own. How quickly they forget. For us, it is to remember that we have been saved with the blood of the perfect lamb, Jesus, and freed not from slavery to the Egyptians, but from slavery to sin and death and the devil. Friends, let's be people who, who are not grumbling or arguing Communities of people that are characterised by grumbling and arguing have forgotten what it is that they're about. It's interesting that um, one of the things I've, I've heard about people in the military, when they're not involved in active service, 
when they're at home and they're just training is that they get into all kinds of trouble and there are regularly fights among themselves but that doesn't happen when you're on the battlefield and there's a common enemy we know that we have been rescued from slavery to the devil from slavery to our own sinfulness so let's not grumble or complain we've been given it all and you know when we are marked as being non-grumblers when the community of Christians is such that people are getting on with each other and encouraging each other and spurring one another on that marks us out as different to those around about us in so many ways look at verse 15 then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life see a community of people that are characterized by gratitude and humility rather than grumbling and arguing is incredibly attractive it shines like stars it, it it's it's a beacon of blessing i've spoken to people who've become christians later in life who have found the whole social thing of, of coming into a christian community to be so incredibly radically different to their experience of life beforehand for me it's it's not like that i grew up in a Christian home always going along to church youth group Sunday school in my teens and then as a young adult always involved with church I can take that community for granted but you come from a completely non-Christian past and I'm sure that you could stand here and just tell us how different it is to gather together with people who have put their trust in Jesus people whose lives aren't filled with grumbling and arguing people who are committed to loving and to caring for one another people who give up their own interests and and their own rights they think in order to to bless those around about them to actually help people to care for people to be committed to other people it's a very pleasant word to see that at work And Paul writes about this and the impact as you read on he says as you hold firmly to the word of life and then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor in vain even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and the service coming from your faith that there's a lot in those words and they're, they're pretty much gathering up worship language from the Old Testament and Paul's describing himself as a sacrifice to God on their behalf but then I want to finish by looking at these words he says even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith I am glad and rejoice with all of you so you too should be glad and rejoice with me in the original it literally says I rejoice and I co-rejoice and so you too should rejoice and co-rejoice with me so the word joy or rejoice 
It's four times there in two sentences. It's a big theme and we'll come to it again a little later in the book, especially in chapter 4. But what he's saying, I take it, is the appropriate response to seeing everything that's been done for us in Christ. If we take on board everything that Christ has given us, how can we not rejoice and then co-rejoice with each other? It's, it's not a place for competition or one-upping each other or complaining or grumbling or trying to get ahead. It's just gratitude, joy. Look at what we've been given and we share this together. And Paul's saying, I rejoice and, and I want you to rejoice with me and, and I want you to rejoice and rejoice with me. See, what we have at work, I take it in this chapter, is a picture of really deep fellowship. It, it's not just uh, a superficial thing where people have a private relationship with God and decide to get together with other people occasionally because it's helpful. It's people who realize that they are united together, that they share together of one spirit, one Christ, one God, that they're united in the grace of God, that the gospel unites them together, that they belong to each other. I think it's very sad when Christian people feel that they don't need church. Because I think it's a failure to understand that the gospel is not just a private thing. It's not just, hey, I've now got a, a, a line of connection to God. It, it's that I've been brought into a community of people connected with God. And that's a joy and a co-joy. It's a privilege. And one of the blessings that I've found in being part of Salt is being able to see that at work amongst us. To see people looking out for each other. See people taking initiative to care for each other. To see people getting alongside others and helping them to read the scriptures. Praying for other people. Mentoring young people. People giving of their time even when they don't feel like a Sunday school or SRE teacher to learn how to invest in children. To put time into youth to spend time meeting up with others, to prepare the Bible so that they can be sharing it with the people around about them. I'm encouraged by a community of people who I think are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now we're not perfect at it. And I'm sure that we're not completely free from selfishness but we're working at willingly giving of ourselves for the sake of each other. And I take it what Jesus is saying to us is, keep at it. Keep on going. That's why I came. I came because I wanted you to be able to enter into what real life is like. The, the life of living not for yourself, which is ugly and lonely but for living for those around about you shaped by the gospel of Jesus motivated and empowered by God himself
That's good news, isn't it? How about we pray? Our Father, we thank you that you are a good God, a good Father. And we thank you that in Jesus we, we see your humility present in, in the life of a man. Um, the, that Jesus gives us a picture of what genuine humanity was intended to be like. We thank you that he didn't um, look to his own entitlement but gave himself for us. And so we pray that you will help us not to feel entitled, not to demand our rights, not to selfishly want things for ourselves, but to be like Christ and serve others. Please help us when we struggle to do this. Please forgive us when we privately get disappointed or grumble when we are tempted to argue or complain remind us again and again of everything that we have to be grateful for help us to appreciate the gospel and to slow down and let it sink in we pray that we won't be superficial in our reading of your word, that we won't be superficial in our application of your word. Please be at work in us by your spirit. And we ask that as people come into contact with your people here at Salt and elsewhere, that they will see something different, that there'll be something that attracts them to want to find out why they are the way they are. And that you'll use the attitude of humility in your people to point people to Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.